This morning's message comes from the first epistle to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. And the title for this morning's message is The Gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, and the Word of God says this. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this passage that is pure gospel truth, Lord God, As we walk through this text where your Apostle Paul communicates what the gospel is, Lord, we pray that you would cause this glorious truth (coughs) to sink deep into our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would enable us to commit to memory, Lord God, what we believe So that not only would we live out the gospel, but so that we would be able to effectively communicate the gospel to the world, which is what you have commanded us to do in the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. So, Lord God, we pray that you would glorify your Son this morning as we reflect upon the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the, uh, in the year 2010, uh, there was a little book that was published by Crossway that was titled, What is the Gospel? And it's not a long book, about 125 pages. It's a good book, written by Greg Gilbert. The foreword was written by D.A. Carson. And it was very well received. In fact, it was so well received and sold so well that in 2016 they published a little evangelistic tract by the same title, What is the Gospel? Which is a really good little evangelistic tract, by the way, if you're looking for one to hand out to your friends and neighbors. Um, But one would think, one would think that after 2,000 years of church history, that an entire book would not need to be written on what is the gospel, right? And it certainly wouldn't sell so well. Um, But nonetheless, it did. Um, And I believe that it is because that is a word, the gospel is a word that Christians have become so comfortable with. We've become so familiar with. We, we hear it 
everywhere. We sing it in our songs. We sing it in our hymns. It's, it's in the Bible. The word gospel is, is uh, found all over the place. We just uh, saw that in, last week in verses 1 and 2. Paul begins by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. Uh, and then, of course, it's made its way into the secular world and lost its meaning. We have gospel singers, gospel artists. They produce gospel albums. People who clearly don't even know what the gospel is produced, have produced many of these uh, very popular and best-selling gospel albums. Um, many Christians just assume that we know what that word means. Um, <laughs> In fact, many non-believers who grew up in the church think that they understand the meaning of the gospel until you ask them what the meaning of the gospel is, which makes for a great way to share the gospel in the Bible Belt, by the way. Um, one of the things that I've learned uh, moving into the Bible Belt years ago is uh, you, know, you start to share the gospel with people, and, and 90% of the people you come across, you know, I grew up in church. Right? I know all about that. Went to Sunday school. Yes, I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. I know the gospel. Uh, I, I, I know what all of that. I know, it all, I know all about Christianity. So then I like to ask, so then you know what the gospel is. You've heard the gospel before. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, can you explain it to me? Can you define it for me? In my experience, 98% of the time. Uh, you know, now that I think about it, I'm not really sure I can actually define that word. Oh, well, great. Well, then would you mind if I explain to you what the gospel is? Well, sure. Hence, a great opportunity to share the gospel with those who think they know the gospel. But even among believers, even among true believers who attend church weekly, who read their Bibles daily, who go to weekly Bible studies um, when asked to explain the gospel in their own words, it can often prove challenging. Over the years, I have had many opportunities to ask that question to people that I believe were genuine believers, as that is a part of uh, joining in membership in this church. Uh, in our membership interview, uh, we asked the question, explain the gospel in your own words. And at the previous church that I ministered to, that was something that we did uh, as well. And often, not, not a lot, but more than you would realize, more than you would think, these genuine believers, people that I knew and thought they were truly saved, would be stumped by that question. Explain the gospel in your own words. But it's really an important question, isn't it? It's really an important question um, for church membership. Uh, but for every believer, for at least three reasons, you could probably think of more, but I'll give you at least three, why that is an important question to ask people who are wanting to join our church. Number one is that as Baptists, we strive for a regenerate church membership. We strive for a regenerate church membership. Because as Baptists, we believe that the New Covenant community should only be comprised of born-again believers. Now, there are other Christian denominations out there who think otherwise. They think their unbelieving children are legitimately a part of the Covenant community. But as Baptists, we understand differently. 
we have a different understanding of Jeremiah 31. And we believe that the new covenant community should be composed of genuine born-again believers. So if we are going to bring you into this local covenant community, we ought to be convinced of your salvation. And regeneration, of course, comes from hearing and believing the gospel, right? Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, i.e., the gospel. The gospel is the means, the primary means through which God chooses to save and regenerate people. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. It is not that the gospel message itself contains power and regenerates. The Holy Spirit does that, but the Holy Spirit uses the gospel message of Jesus Christ as a means of saving, regenerating grace. And of course, Jesus' first command after being baptized and beginning his ministry in Mark 1.15 is repent and believe upon the gospel. That's how Jesus begins his ministry. So that's the first reason is that as Baptists we strive for a regenerate church membership. So that's the first reason that Christians and particularly those coming into church membership should know and be able to Explain the gospel in their own words. Secondly, if a Christian cannot explain what the gospel is, it raises the question, how can you believe in something you don't understand? It raises that question, right? You say that you believe, but if you can't explain or if you don't understand the gospel, then how can you really believe the gospel? How is it that you have placed faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't actually understand the gospel, which then raises a second question. If you don't understand the gospel, then are you actually saved? It raises that question. You see, because when I was a high school teacher, one of the things that they constantly drove home to us is that if a student cannot repeat back to you in some form, orally or on a test, if a student cannot repeat back to you what they've learned, then they haven't actually learned it. If you can't articulate the gospel, then do you actually know the gospel? And if you don't know the gospel, then are you actually saved? And I do think that's an important question. Thirdly, a third reason I think it is an important question to ask of every believer of ourselves, of yourself, of those who are coming into church membership, is that if a Christian does not understand the gospel, then how can he or she be faithful to the Great Commission? We are commanded as Christians to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, but if you can't articulate the gospel in your own words, how are you going to be faithful to the Great Commission? This is what every Christian should be about the business of doing. We all have different gifts within the church. We're all called to do different things. But the one thing that we are all called to do is to go out into the world 
and to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not just the job of the professional traveling evangelist. It's not just the job of missionaries. It's not just the job of the pastor. It is the job of every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so, in our text this morning, we're given a wonderful treat in that Paul is going to explain the gospel for us. He's going to explain the gospel to the church in Corinth because the gospel is the sine qua non of Christianity. That is to say that without the gospel, the gospel is the thing without which there is no Christianity. There is no Christianity without the gospel. There are no Christians without the gospel. And that's not just stating the obvious because there are a lot of other doctrines that we can lose. There are a lot of other doctrines that we can get wrong and not lose our Christianity. In other words, I'll give you a few if you're wondering. I think I stated a few of these last week. You can be wrong in your eschatology. Pro-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, ah-mill. And still be a believer and in a covenantal relationship with God. You can be wrong on your ecclesiology. You can be wrong on your understanding of the gifts. You can be wrong on your understanding of the biblical roles of men and women. You can be wrong on who should and should not be allowed into pastoral ministry. And yes, still make it into heaven. Probably by the skin of your teeth. But you can still make it in heaven. To heaven. You can be wrong about your soteriology. Whether or not you hold to Arminianism or Calvinism or some illegitimate version in between the two, but you cannot be wrong about the gospel. The gospel is the one biblical truth you must have right. The church must have right. Now, that's not to say that there are no other doctrines that are just as important. There are other related doctrines that are so crucial to a right understanding of the gospel that to lose those is to lose the gospel. For example, the deity of Christ. If Christ is not God, there is no gospel. The deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, is at the very heart of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ and there is no gospel. Right? These are things that are, that are um, inextricably linked to the gospel message. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Paul wants the church in Corinth uh, to understand the gospel. To be sure... He's going to spend about 95% of this chapter on the resurrection. The bulk of chapter 15 is about the resurrection of Christ. But he wants the church in Corinth to understand that the resurrection hinges on the gospel. Our future bodily resurrection hinges on the gospel. And a proper understanding of the gospel hinges on a right understanding of the resurrection. The two go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. No gospel, no resurrection. No resurrection, then no gospel. 
Thus, in our text this morning, Paul will present three essential elements to the gospel. And this is really important. Three essential elements to any gospel presentation, any biblical gospel presentation. But before we delve into the text, I want to just take a brief moment to talk about the word itself, gospel, because that question comes up uh, quite often. Where does that word come from? Because the underlying Greek word uh, for gospel in the New Testament, uh, the, the, the Greek New Testament is the word euangelion, and it's where we get our English word uh, evangelical or evangelism. Um, it's also where we get our English word uh, eulogy, right? It's where you say something good about someone else, right? And so it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which literally does mean good news. That's what the word means. So then why do we translate that word in other places as gospel? Where does that English word come from? Well, it comes from the Old English. When I say Old English, I mean the kind of English that was spoken from the 7th to the 10th century. Right? So this is over a thousand years ago. In the Old English, uh, they translated the Greek word euangelion with the English word godspell. Godspell. And uh, it comes from two words. It's a compound word. The first word is god, which means good. That was the way of saying good. And spell, which, was, which meant uh, a tale or a story or news or something that you would communicate to someone else. So it was the good spell, it was the good news, quite literally, of Jesus Christ. Over the last thousand years, the D has dropped out of the word, and so hence we are left with gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells them in verse 1 that he wants to remind them of the gospel. The gospel by which... They were made to stand the gospel by which they continue to be made to stand in their faith and the gospel by which they are being saved. And we looked at all of those tenses last week. And so now he says in verse three, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, I want to stop right there and just uh, take note of the fact that he says, I deliver to you as of first importance. That is, of all of the Christian beliefs that we hold to, the gospel is of first importance. That is what Paul is communicating to the church in Corinth. This is of first importance. If you are going to get anything right, make sure you get this right. You can study all of the other theology you want, and it's all important. You ought to study it all. You ought to study the book of Revelation. But make sure that you know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is of first importance. Because, again, as I've already mentioned, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the gospel message. The Holy Spirit works through the gospel message. And that is so encouraging when you think in terms of evangelism, uh, for example. You know, bringing other people to a saving knowledge of Christ is not dependent on how smart you are. 
It's not dependent on how well you can argue apologetics or how many, how many scripture verses you can quote or whether or not you can defend a young earth over and against an old earth or whatever the case may be. The power to bring people to Christ is found in the message of the gospel itself. You present that gospel and the Holy Spirit will do the work. We just need to be faithful to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. And so Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. What I also received. Of course, we know that Paul first received the gospel on the Damascus Road. Acts chapter 9, where he is confronted by the resurrected Christ. It wasn't communicated in a verbal sense. When you read chapter 9, Jesus doesn't go through and say, let me tell the gospel to you, Paul. It became real to him. It became real. It was a visual manifestation of the gospel. You're alive. We crucified you. You're alive. Surely you are the Lord Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. But it may also be that Paul is referring to his visit with the, uh, with the apostles in Jerusalem, which he recounts in Galatians chapter 1. After his conversion, he goes away into the desert for about three years, probably to, to re-study the entire Old Testament. But then he goes and visits with the apostles in uh, Jerusalem. And certainly they would have communicated to him verbally what the gospel is. But now Paul recounts for the church the three essential elements of the gospel. And the first is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Meaning Christ died in our place. He died in our place. He took God's wrath upon himself. The wrath and the anger and the punishment that should have come upon us was brought to bear upon Jesus Christ. We have committed crimes against God. And for that, we are the ones who are deserving of both physical death and eternal spiritual death. Christ never sinned. Remember that that's the consequences of sin. That that started back in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, except you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, and we're told that Adam died. It may not have happened right away, at least not a physical death, but he certainly died spiritually immediately. There was the immediate consequence of that relationship with God being broken. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that sin and death came into the world because of Adam. Death is the result of sin. We die physically and we are born into spiritual, a state of spiritual death because of sin either our sin which we commit or the imputed guilt of Adam which is passed on 
to us. And so it raises the question, but why did Christ die then? Because Christ never sinned. Not only by his own admission, but even when he said that in front of an audience of people, which one of you, he says to a crowd of Jews, can accuse me of sin and no one says a word. I wouldn't even say that in front of my family, let alone a crowd of people who know me. No one says anything because no one can think of a single instance in which Christ sinned. So then why does Christ die? The Bible makes it clear in places like Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, Scripture tells us that God demonstrates His love for us. This is how God showed His love for humanity and specifically for the church. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are the ones who should die eternally. Christ died in our place. According to Paul, in accordance with the Scriptures. Clearly, the Scriptures he would have had in mind come from Isaiah 53. So this is all prophesied about. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Scripture says this, Surely he has borne our griefs. Keep in mind, the book of Isaiah is written about 800 years before the time of Christ. 800 years. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Second half of verse 8, Scripture says, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Second half of verse 12, Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the amazing good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for us. The wrath of God that was poured out on Christ, the bloody cross, with all of his floggings and his beating and the crown that was pressed upon his head, the crown of thorns hanging on a cross by... That should have been us. Forever. That should have been us. But Christ demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that's an important phrase, while we were still shaking our fist at God, saying, I don't need you, stay out of my life. God the Father says, that's okay. My son is going to die for you anyway. Because we love you. Christ loves his bride and died on the cross in our place. This is because God is... A God of justice. As scripture tells us, he is the just judge of all the universe and sin cannot go unpunished. No just judge 
in any nation, in any culture, can turn a blind eye to a crime that has been committed. Simply ignore it. That would be a miscarriage of justice. God is the just judge of all the earth. So when a crime is committed against God, someone must pay for that crime. Someone must pay for that crime. The trouble is that when we sin, when we sin, we incur an infinite debt against an infinite God, which is why unbelievers spend infinity in hell because a finite creature can never satisfy an infinite debt owed to an infinite God. This is why Christ had to be fully God. Christ had to be infinite. He had to be an infinite being because only an infinite being can offer an infinite sacrifice to satisfy the infinite debt that is owed to an infinite God. No human can do that. We can't pay for our own sins let alone pay for someone else. This is why the early church fathers spent so much time on this subject, why so many of the confessions that we have been reading together talk a lot about this, right? You remember some time ago we read together through the Nicene Creed? One of the sentences in the Nicene Creed says that Jesus is, quote, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Just last week, we read from the Chalcedonian Creed, and we read that Jesus is, quote, perfect in deity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true man. The deity of Christ is absolutely essential to the gospel, because if Jesus is not fully 100% God, then his death on the cross is meaningless. The glorious good news of the gospel, the amazing glorious good news of the gospel is that God takes on human form, steps into our world, lives the perfect life of obedience which the law demands, dies on the cross to pay for the penalty of sin which the law demands, And God does this in order to rescue us from himself. From his own wrath and justice. The second essential element of any biblical complete gospel presentation is that number four, he was buried. He was buried. Christ died and was Buried. In other words, Paul wants to drive home the point that the swoon theory is absolutely false. Jesus didn't just pass out on a cross, woke up in the tomb. The swoon theory is absolutely ridiculous. So also is the stolen body theory, if you've heard of that. Someone came along later and they snuck in and they stole the body of Jesus while the Roman soldiers were sleeping. Roman soldiers were experts at killing people. They were experts at killing people and making sure that they were dead and making sure that they stayed dead. They were trained in doing this. 
There's a reason little tiny Italy conquered everything from North Africa to modern-day uh, Iraq to modern-day Spain all the way to the southern border of modern-day Scotland. That little nation that is no bigger than the size of California at, at most conquered the entire known world. Why? Because Roman soldiers were the elite military forces of the ancient world. They were well-trained. They were well-disciplined. And thus, Paul drives home the fact that Jesus died and was buried. They knew he was dead. The third essential element of the gospel that Paul includes and the one that is most often left out is that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's interesting that Paul includes this in the gospel. This is an important element of any gospel presentation that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Very often we leave that out, don't we? When we share the gospel with people. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, you know, is the son of God. He stepped into our world. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. And if you'll believe that and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And I hope to see you on church on Sunday. Where's the resurrection? In fact, this is so important that Paul will spend the next four verses driving home this point. He just stacks the evidence. He does this, I think, likely because the fact that a man died and was buried is not remarkable. The fact that someone came back to life, now that's remarkable, right? That's something that is worth talking about. He's also going to spend a lot of time on the resurrection as everything uh, from verse 12 all the way down to verse 58. In fact, the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 12, is all about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and then our future bodily resurrection. Because it all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. It all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. If there is no resurrection of Christ, not only is there no future bodily resurrection for the believer, but there is no gospel. In fact, Paul will say as much in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, we're all wasting our time. This is a ridiculous religious exercise if Christ did not rise from the dead. And so Paul stacks the evidence, beginning in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Hint, hint, go check for yourself if you want. You can verify the evidence, they're still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. 
Most of them are still alive. Most of them, their testimony can still be verified even today. That is significant evidence. Because in a court of law, if the prosecution can bring up one at a time into the witness stand, 500 people who are all going to point the finger at the defendant and say, yep, that's him. He's the one who did it. You know, the defense attorney better seriously be thinking about a plea deal. Paul says 500 people. And the idea that all of these people could have hallucinated the same thing is equally as absurd. It is scientifically and medically impossible. You can get 500 people to hallucinate at the same time. Very simple. Give them all some sort of hallucinogenic. And they're going to hallucinate, but they're not all going to see the same thing in the same way. It is not possible. All of these individuals and the disciples themselves, most of them, were willing to be persecuted and suffer and die for something that they knew was true. Christ rose from the dead and we saw him. And of course, Paul reminds us again that all of this was prophesied in Scripture. This is what adds additional evidence that what Christ came to do was all talked about hundreds and in some cases thousands of years prior to him even coming into the world. Again, likely what Paul has in mind is Psalm 16 which is so significant in prophesying about the resurrection of Christ, written by King David, that Peter references this in his argument in Acts chapter 2. Peter giving his famous sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Peter says, For David says concerning him, and now he quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Keep in mind, David wrote this. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, a little bit of sarcasm, do you hear the sarcasm there? I may say to you with confidence, I am quite certain of this, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David is dead, and he stayed dead. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, right? He's referring to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises to David that you will have a descendant who will sit upon your throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades and did nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says, this was prophesied about by David. 
Go read that psalm. Who is David talking about? He couldn't have been talking about himself because David is still dead. He was talking about his future son, Jesus Christ. You know, what's interesting is that Peter's gospel presentation includes all of the same elements as well. You look at verse 23 and Peter says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death, burial, and resurrection. Peter includes all of those elements in his gospel presentation. And then what is their response? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Say this sinner's prayer. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My friends, that message goes out to every person today. Repent and believe. The same command that Jesus issued in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is the same command that God demands of every person in this room and every person who may listen to this message on the internet, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where salvation comes from. Salvation is that easy and the gospel is that simple. And if you're sitting here this morning in this room and you have not done that, I I implore you, I beg you to do that this morning. To admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and believe that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, stepped out of the glories of heaven, took on human form, and died on the cross to pay for your sins. And then he was buried and he rose from the dead for your justification. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, having an intimate covenantal relationship with the living God is simply a matter of hearing and believing. Hearing and believing. That's what Jesus says in John 5, 24. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. Jesus said, he who hears my words and believes. That is all that is required for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins, for entering into a, an everlasting covenantal relationship with the living God is to simply hear the good news of Jesus Christ, which you have heard today, and believe it for yourself. And if you'll do that, forgiveness of sins has been granted to you. Eternal life is yours and you can be absolutely assured of that. How can you be assured? Because Christ rose from the dead. He couldn't stay dead 
Because he's not a sinner. Death is the result of sin. Jesus never sinned. So death could have no hold on him. That's the evidence. The evidence that what he did on the cross and in his life truly atones for those who place faith in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand amazed by this glorious gospel truth. Father, I pray for every believer in this room. Lord, I pray that we would that we view the gospel as Paul did, that we would see it as of first importance, Lord God. That we would remind ourselves of the gospel every day, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every day, Lord God. But that we would also seek to be faithful to the great commission given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we would proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, Lord God. That we would do for others what others obviously did for us at some point in our history. Lord Father, we pray, I pray for every unbeliever in this room, Lord. Pray for every child or adult that is uncertain of where they would spend eternity if they died today. Lord God, I pray, I pray that you would cause them to realize that the gospel message is really, is really very simple. And salvation is really, really very simple. It is simply a matter of bowing the knee to Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is simply a matter of acknowledging that they are sinners in need of a Savior and then believing that Christ is that Savior and loving Him for it. Father, I pray for every unbeliever in this room, Lord. I pray that you would sovereignly open their eyes to the glory of Christ. I pray that you would take hold of their affections at this moment, that you would warm their heart and their soul to Christ and that they would have a newfound desire to know Christ, to follow Christ, to pursue Christ in light of all that Christ has done for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen.